Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox and I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. In this episode, I visit with Benjamin Britz. He is a partner at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. We consider the current status of the Varsity Blues prosecution. We look at the persons who have pled guilty and the relatively light sentences they received. We'll take a look at those who are maintaining their innocence and have continued to plead not guilty in the face of continuing increased charges, including money laundering. We take a look at cooperating witnesses and see where they might be taking their testimony and evidence in this case. We consider the colleges and universities involved and what it may mean for them going forward. It's a topical podcast, literally torn from the headlines, that I know you will enjoy. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and today we are going to take a look at Varsity Blues. So I have with me uh, Ben Britz. Ben is with a partner at Hughes Hubbard, and he is going to speak to me about where we are in Varsity Blues, where we've been, and where we may be going. So Ben, first of all, go blue, uh, as we're fellow U of M grads. Uh, But second of all, first, uh, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, professional background and your practice these days. Sure. Uh, I'm a, as you said, I'm a partner at Hughes Hubbard and Reed uh, in Washington D.C. and I'm part of our uh, what we call our internal investigation, anti-corruption and internal investigations practice group, which uh, is sort of a broad umbrella uh, dealing with investigating and then handling whatever fallout there may be, whether it's a uh, enforcement action, shareholder lawsuit, uh, you know, criminal prosecution uh, of uh, various uh, sorts of wrongdoing, usually usually corporate wrongdoing, but that can go towards uh, individuals as well. Uh, the majority of the work deals with uh, anti-bribery concerns, uh, often under the FCPA, but also under other statutes. Uh, but uh, can can apply to a wide number of uh, potential misconduct. Ben, I was wondering if you could uh, kind of give the audience a, a, a broad uh, description of what the Varsity Blues scandal is. Sure. The, the Varsity Blues scandal is essentially a college admissions scheme. It, it's centered around an individual named Rick Singer. And what he had done was devised what he described as a side door to the college admissions process, the front door being uh, getting in on your merits. The back door, as he put it, was getting in based on uh, donations to a university. Uh, and he had the side door. And that essentially consisted of two schemes that he uh, managed for, for quite some time with a, a, a large number of different families. The first scheme being uh, cheating on college admissions tests, uh, which he had a number of ways to facilitate, including a person he was working with who was sort of a testing savant who would go and uh, uh, pretend to be the student in question uh, and could basically get whatever score they had decided. Um, the other scheme was, and this is the one that's really gotten a lot of attention because it's a little more salacious, is essentially paying university athletics coaches and athletics administrators bribes 
to pretend during the admissions process that particular students were recruited uh, athletes so that they would get much more favorable admissions treatment when in fact the students had uh, generally no aptitude uh, at all for the particular sports that they were supposedly uh, that they were supposedly so gifted in and would be contributing to the university. Now he, as I said, there's a lot of people that got wrapped up in this. There's over 50 people that have been charged. Uh, people who are working with Singer, people, uh, the, the the coaches and administrators, and then various uh, parents. Uh, one of the interesting things here is that in many cases the students themselves didn't know about the schemes. Um, but the parents who were paying for paying him the money to facilitate these various uh, these various schemes, and obviously some of these people uh, are are quite well known, uh, low level celebrities, uh, and so that has uh, greatly increased the media uh, attention that the case has gotten. So we seem to be uh, at a at a point where we've had uh, several people plead guilty. We've had, uh, or multiple people plead guilty, and, and then we've had multiple people who have been sentenced. My observation has been that the sentences the judges have laid down have been uh, below what the prosecution has asked for, perhaps a little bit higher than what the defendant asked for. Um, in terms of white-collar crime, uh, would that be consistent with what you've seen in practice where the judge uh, might uh, go in a different direction or split the difference or or do something different than really what the prosecution has laid out? Or are there other factors uh, that the, the court takes into account? Sure. The I don't think it's unusual. I, people have noted that the sentences that have come out to date have been relatively light. Uh, that doesn't entirely surprise me, uh, given some of the conduct that's alleged and the, the defendants themselves. Uh, I think the courts are probably uh, likely to take something of a view that these are, however distasteful the conduct may be, there isn't a particular gain from locking these people up uh, long term. These, these aren't threats to society. Uh, these are people who got uh, overzealous, shall we say, in trying to get their kids into school. Uh, and so some of the sentences which have been, you know, several weeks of jail and then a year of supervised release, thing, things of that nature, uh, probably gets in the judge's view uh, to, where they, to where they need to be, uh, considering the sort of collateral consequences that, uh, that are coming towards, towards these defendants. You know, these, these have huge implications for these people in their personal and professional lives. Uh, and given that, a judge may not uh, be particularly moved to tack on an extended jail term. So it, it doesn't surprise me per se, um, uh, but you know every judge will weigh things differently, so you never you can never count on that. Um, it's also a function of you're getting the people who pled first, and those people. Uh, are usually the ones who are going to get the most leniency. They're usually cooperating, uh, and so there uh, th there's an advantage to being at the head of the pack if you want if you want a lighter sentence. So two prominent persons who have continued to assert their innocence are 
uh, relatively well-known, at least one of them, Lori uh, Laughlin, and her husband, Mosamino Giannulli. New charges based on federal law targeting bribes of over $5,000 or more to organizations that receive at least $10,000 from the federal government, which would include some of the universities involved who've accepted research grant, have really been added uh, to the indictment against these individuals. Does that really differ from the prior charges of fraud around honest services or money laundering? Uh, so is something different going on or is this more just uh, adding on to what's already there? Uh, I think it serves really two purposes. The first is simply applying further pressure uh, to these people to try to get them to agree to uh, a guilty plea of some of some variety. And it's not beyond prosecutors to add charges where they can to amp up the pressure, uh, particularly where these people are looking at other cases and seeing relatively light sentences uh, coming in, prosecutor may view it as sort of a carrot and stick approach uh, to coaxing these people uh, into, into being more cooperative. The other side of it is that uh, from a legal perspective, the, the charges that they're adding somewhat fill some holes that might exist uh, from a factual standpoint in some of the other charges. And what I mean by that is the original charges are mainly uh, wire fraud and honest services fraud. Wire fraud in that they've, uh, you know, used wires to to facilitate uh, a fraud on the, uh, I guess, on the universities. Um, honest services fraud, uh, a variation of that because wire fraud is limited to you have to be defrauding the person out of uh, property and again in in these cases it's sort of a a mental exercise what's the property that's being uh, obtained I guess it's an admission slot it's a little ephemeral um, the honest services fraud says that these that the universities are entitled to the honest services of their employees uh, so that substitutes for the need for uh, a, a, a true property, um, so that. But even with that, it's a little, uh, possibly in some of these cases, a little difficult for the prosecutors to explain to a to a to a jury and to really get the proof here of who's the victim, what's the damage, um, the. It, uh, these charges become a little bit, uh, as I said, ephemeral, because there isn't a particular thing being gained in, in that that someone else is being deprived of, arguably. And what the what the new charge does, it's it adds a charge of federal program bribery, which basically says that because these universities are receiving federal funds, there's a there's a statute that says you can't uh, engage in certain sorts of of bribery with regards to things receiving federal funds, and that becomes a little easier, perhaps, to explain to a jury to say the victim here is the United States government. Well, the United States government allocated money to to provide these services, and these people are illegally undermining that process. And maybe that shores up a little of the uh, of the 
difficulties that they might be finding uh, factually in some of the other uh, in some of the other charges. Ben, my uh, only real experience with uh, white collar, collar defendants is around the FCPA, and um, there are very few FCPA individuals who go to trial, although I recognize we're in the middle of a huge trial right now, so that's somewhat anonymous, anomalous, I should say, but there was a couple named Gerald and Patricia Green that went to trial, I think back in 2010, and they lost. They were given as minimum of sentences as you can get. Uh, six months house arrest for uh, Gerald Green and three months for his wife, Patricia. But because they went to trial and were found guilty, uh, the government came in and forfeited their assets. Is that kind of draconian uh, penalty uh, something that um, the defendants in Varsity Blues are looking at, or are they only looking at uh, some amount of jail time? Uh, I believe that some, I, I'd have to look more carefully, but I'm pretty sure that uh, in a number of the cases, there are forfeiture uh, allegations or, or uh, forfeiture charges, I should say. Uh, so I, I, I think that is available in at least in, in at least some of the cases. So you mentioned him early on, Rick Singer, and that's the person who really uh, led the uh, the uh, college admission scheme, or uh, has been uh, the lead lead person leading this scandal. He pled guilty earlier this year and is cooperating with prosecutors. Uh, would you expect him to testify at trial if anyone went to trial? And uh, would that help him uh, potentially reduce his sentence uh, if he, uh, when he does get sentenced? Uh, I would. Uh, I, I think it would be very difficult to prosecute without him testifying. Um, uh, also, certainly it would uh, help him uh, in his own sentencing. He's already, I believe, gotten uh, a recommendation from the government for, I think it's three years of supervised relief, supervised release, I should say, uh, and a fine of something on the lines of uh, a million and a quarter dollars. Uh, considering that the charges he was facing uh, uh, carried about 65 years of jail time, I think that's a pretty good deal he's got already. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so I don't know how much beyond that he's going to get, um, but certainly he's he's given a huge amount of cooperation uh, to the government, and uh, as often happens, he's been rewarded for it. So in in Texas, that's what we'd say is good lawyering. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the. Um, one of the things that has struck me uh, about some of the claims of the defendants, some have now been dropped and some are, are moving forward, they claim that they thought they were making a charitable or making a donation to the university. And it's, yep. I would say, a time-honored tradition for people whose uh, parents, whose children are, are um, potentially considering a university to make a large uh, grant, to make a large donation. Um, that's something that's gone on probably way before you and I were born and will continue way not, way after you and I are, are gone from the scene. Uh, but the thing that I wondered about is if uh, someone uh, made paid Rick Singer, thought it was a donation, uh, took a charitable deduction on their income tax, would that potentially raise IRS implications if the government really wanted to move that way? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I am not a tax lawyer, so <laughs> I will I, I will gladly not uh, get into the details of where that fits in the 
in the tax in the tax regulations. But as a, uh, I think the quicker way to answer it is that uh, in a number of these cases, that's already baked into the prosecution because a number of the defendants have been charged with fraud with fraud against the United States by virtue of the fact that they took tax deductions uh, and therefore uh, defrauded the IRS. Uh, so in, for some of these individuals where they, where they did take it as tax deductions, uh, they're actually being charged for that already. Uh, whether the IRS could come uh, around us for another bite uh, at the apple uh, may, may depend somewhat on the, uh, the scope of the uh, agreements these people might, might be reaching. Um, and other uh, nuances of tax law that I'm not uh, an expert on, but it's already been part of the prosecution for a number of these people. It it's also goes to a somewhat an in of an interesting defense that some of the people I think are, are, are testing out, which is that they legitimately believed that these were charitable donations. Um, and there's at least, if you read some of the documents, uh, some reason that you could give people a bit of the benefit of the doubt on some of these these cases because you the the way that Singer explains what's going on and what he's doing uh, it, to the to the parents is not always as explicit as you might think. He sort of makes it sound all right. For instance, uh, there are a number of cases where the person who's being bribed is the is an uh, I think an associate athletic director uh, I think at USC and there are checks going instead of to that person personally they're going to USC and on top of that he is explaining it to the parents saying uh, yeah the athletic department wants to raise salaries for the assistant coaches but they don't want to go through the general fund, so they've they've they're doing it in this other way. Um, and I think some people are likely to say they didn't understand what was actually going on. They thought they were making some sort of a legitimate char charitable donation, or that they thought they were making a charitable donation to his particular charity, the, the I think it's the Key Foundation that he had set up, although there's probably a weaker argument there. Um, I'm not sure if any of those will necessarily fly given some of the other uh, other evidence in these in these cases, but there there have been some some rumblings that I've seen of people saying, what do you mean this was a that I didn't I didn't think I was bribing anyone. I thought I was doing what everyone does, which is make donations to schools to that to to get my kids in. Now <laughs> you can take, you know, whatever view of that policy that you want, but it is it is commonplace. So, well, Ben, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has just been a fascinating uh, exploration, at least for me, of Varsity Blues, sort of where we've been, uh, where we are now, and uh, I wanted to maybe end with uh, where we might be headed in the future. Is uh, is would in your experience would this be something that typically eventually most of the all of the defendants would plead guilty and it would just sort of go away or you know perhaps are we looking at a a huge uh, show trial not show trial but trial in terms of a lot of publicity 
uh, and a lot of interest uh, from people like me and yourself and people, uh, uh, other people, and certainly the press. Um, well, as, uh, uh, I have to say, I'm sort of hoping that someone uh, pushes it to trial. I think it would be, I think it would be fascinating. Um, but my expectation is that uh, eventually most, if not all, of these will probably resolve uh, in, 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 some, in some fashion. Uh, I, 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 you know, you figure if there's 50 defendants, the mask just tells you that someone's going to fight. Uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, I think if you look at uh, how quickly so many people have uh, laid down and pled out on this, uh, I suspect there's going to be increasing pressure on the holdouts to uh, to follow suit, particularly you know as the prosecutors ramp up uh, uh, the charges and as the uh, possibility of real jail time uh, starts to set in for people who may be uh, a little bit in denial. So uh, it could it could go either way. Uh, candidly, I hope someone fights it, but uh, you never know. Well, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to visit with me. This has been a, a great uh, conversation and I look forward to uh, perhaps visiting with you again as we get further into these cases. Happy to do so. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another issue or issues to explore in the world of FCPA compliance and ethics. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.